for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I want to begin with an experience that almost all of us, I think, can relate to. Angry drivers, right? How many of you out there have ever been an angry driver? Okay, yes, I see those hands. We will pray for you. <clears throat> now, living in New Jersey, okay, it's, it's hard not to let a little bit of road rage creep in every once in a while, amen, right? And of course, of course, it's always the other person's fault because they look like that, right? <clears throat> But it is not just a New Jersey phenomenon, right? According to a new study by the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety, nearly 80% of U.S. drivers ha say they have expressed significant anger, aggression, or road rage behind the wheel at least once in the last year. So if you didn't raise your hand and there wasn't 80%, some of you out there are lying. The most alarming findings suggest that approximately 8 million U.S. drivers engaged in extreme examples of road rage, such as purposefully ramming another vehicle or getting out of the car to confront another driver. Now, many drivers uh, reported engaging in the following types of road rage this last year. So, for example, purposefully tailgating was the top at 51%. Uh, then there was yelling at another driver, right? 47%, uh, honking at someone to show annoyance or anger, 45%. These are the people that really get me. Um, making angry gestures, 33%. And then yet, at a quarter of it, it was trying to block another vehicle from changing lanes. Okay. Now, one of the studies researchers concluded inconsiderate driving bad traffic and the daily stressors of life can transform minor frustrations into dangerous road rage. Far too many drivers are losing themselves in the heat of the moment and lashing out in ways that could turn deadly. Now, I just have to say, uh, the next time that you get angry on the road, maybe you should think twice, uh, because you never know who else you're going to encounter on the road. Now, perhaps when cars start driving themselves, people will be less angry. I don't know. But here's the truth. Uh, no one likes it when people get angry, right? If someone gets angry at me, I'm likely to get angry back. And that's not going to go in any good direction, and it's not going to produce any good results. Angry people make us uncomfortable. But I want you to notice something. We almost always associate anger with people and never with God. We often think that the God of the Bible is a God of love and benevolence, and he is. But we don't think he ever gets angry. How could God be angry and mean? How could God possibly have road raids? Now, you see, we may not like it when we as people get angry, but we get very uncomfortable 
when we, we talk about God's anger, what the Bible calls his wrath. Now, in today's passage in Romans, it's going to talk specifically about the wrath of God, and it will make us uncomfortable. And of course, I'm not suggesting that God has road rage. That's way too simplistic of a, a concept. Uh, but the concept of God's wrath is rarely, if ever, mentioned in our culture. It's taboo. Now think about it for a second. If you walked up to someone, even if you know them pretty well, and you had the audacity to say that they sinned, there would be a fierce, offensive reaction, wouldn't there? How dare you say that I sinned might be the response. In today's culture, you're not supposed to point out people's wrongdoings. You're supposed to celebrate their identity and their actions and their accomplishments. But humanity's wrongdoing against God's law is the very reason that the wrath of God is necessary. Now, this is true even in the church. In fact, back in 2013, the Presbyterian Church USA decided to change the lyrics of the popular modern hymn, In Christ Alone, in their hymn books. Then, if you know the song, the original lyrics had a line that said this, On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Song wanted to substitute the words, the love of God was magnified. Why? Because the wrath of God was offensive to their theological sensibilities. Wrath is not a popular concept. It makes us uncomfortable. Now, for some of us, discussing God's wrath maybe makes us think about uh, bad relationships we were in or abusive fathers. And as we'll see, the wrath of God is never, never about abuse or unrighteous anger. It's always about God's righteous anger against sin in this world. So let's further define the wrath of God. Here are some stereotypical pictures of God's wrath. Maybe you think about lightning from bolts coming from a hand from heaven, very Zeus-like or fire consuming the world, or, or some giant hand coming down and smashing the globe. These are caricatures and don't adequately help us understand God's wrath, which can be defined as his settled, fair, and right anger against sin. It's not road rage. In the scriptures, the wrath of God most often refers to his personal indignation towards human sinfulness, and this is why we need the righteousness from God. Amen. Humanity's sinfulness and exposure to the wrath of God made the revelation of God's righteousness through the gospel necessary. So last week, you'll remember that Paul stated this in Romans 1.17. He said, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And Paul will go on to say that this righteousness comes by faith. But you may have been asking last week, or you asked this week, well, why do we need this righteousness from God? Can't I live a good life and make myself worthy to enter heaven by all my meritorious works? Remember, last week we learned that this righteousness was good news. However, as good as it is, Paul knows that most people do not think they need it. And so his very first agenda for his letter is to lay out a very long argument from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, arguing that everyone needs the gospel. So verse 18, Paul immediately contrasts verse 17 and tells us why we need the righteousness of God. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So the reason that we need the righteousness of God 
It's because the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, when Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed, he's talking about a present reality. Not, it, it, it's something we're going to see later in this section. Specifically, the wrath of God is revealed as he hands people over to their natural outworking of their sinful behavior. Paul is going to spend the next two chapters telling us how all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The next two chapters are going to unmask our inner desires, our sinful actions, and our self-righteousness. In other words, Paul is about to make his case why we need the righteousness that comes from God. And because without his righteousness, we're under his wrath for our sin. Now again, I know this might be uncomfortable, but we need to hear this. I need to hear this. And you can't fully and truly understand the good news of the gospel without grasping the bad news. And so in Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul shows us why the wrath of God is being revealed in three ways. Three ways. First, we see it in our rejection. Second, we see it in God's reaction. And finally, his parting word for us is this, be careful what you celebrate. So with that in mind, let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we recognize that some passages of Scripture are more challenging than others. They make us more uncomfortable than others, Lord, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Lord, help us to see our sinfulness, all of our sinfulnesses and our need for you. And may that move us forward to thank you more and more for our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, let's look at our rejection. Now, specifically, we're going to look at humanity's rejection of God himself. So look back at verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness? So, again, why is the wrath of God being revealed? Well, he gives two reasons right away. First, for godlessness, which specifically refers to lack of reverence for a deity. Or put another way, people are not worshiping the true God. Second, because of wickedness, which refers to a violation of human rights. Wicked people are those who do evil acts against other people. Now, even more than that, their wickedness suppresses the truth about God. And these two concepts are in direct violation of the great commandment that Jesus gives in Matthew 22, where he says, love God, love others. So godlessness and wickedness violate those two things. That is what attracts the wrath of God. Now, at this point, you might be objecting, and you say, well, how do we square God's love with God's wrath? How can these two things be true at the same time? Here, I think, theologian N.T. Wright is really helpful. He writes this. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath, or as he say, God's wrath, is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good wise and loving creator who hates, yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is not good or loving. 
If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. And he concludes, he says, if God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, or enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. I'll put it another way. I have a daughter. And if anyone were to inflict harm upon my daughter and I did not get angry about it, it would be evidence that I did not love her because we get angry for the things we love. The Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and delight for his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying peace and integrity. So just to sum that all up, God gets angry when people don't love him and they don't love others. Now at this point you may be saying, well that's a lot of good information, but I don't see how this applies to me because I'm a good person, I go to church, and I'm kind to other people. Well, there's two key points of application I want to point out to you in this section. And the first one is this. We are all inclined toward suppression. We are all inclined toward suppression. Look back at verse 18. Paul indicates that wickedness or not loving others can suppress the truth about God. But you ask the question, well, what, what does it mean to suppress the truth? It means that we can actually reject a truth we already know. In other words, you may know the gospel. You may believe the Bible. You may have grown up in church, but you can actively suppress the truth in your life trying to justify your lifestyle, which is in contradiction with God's truth. Think about it this way. Imagine you're in a swimming pool with a volleyball. And then just let's pretend that you're trying to hide that volleyball from someone, and so you actively push that volleyball under the water. In fact, you may even sit on the volleyball to hide it. What are you doing? You're suppressing the volleyball under the water, but when you're sitting on it, you know it's there, right? And it takes a lot of work to keep it hidden. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says we actively suppress or push down the truth to justify our selfish living. But we always know the truth is there. We can feel it. It's like that volleyball. You're engaging in a form of self-deception. Now, you may be sitting in this room today, and you may know the truth, but you're, supp you're suppressing it to justify your licentious lifestyle. And even if you're a Christian, there is still a tendency to suppress the truth to justify your actions, because we all need to fight against our sinful inclinations. Now, again, some people out there might object and say, well, well what about the people that don't go to church and don't believe in Jesus? Well, Paul anticipates that objection as well. And so he says this in verse 19. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So how do we suppress the truth? We suppress the truth by rejecting what we see around ourselves. Now, this verse is all about what theologians call general revelation. It's an echo of Psalm 19 where David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the name for God is Yahweh, which 
means that he is a God who reveals himself. He's not trying to stay hidden. God has made himself known everywhere. So Paul says, don't think you have an excuse because the evidence of God is everywhere. It's in nature. It's in the other people around you. If you reject him, it's not because he hasn't given you evidence. The law, as he says in chapter 2, is written on your heart. All of us are inclined toward suppression. And it's only when God opens our eyes that our lives change. And even after we become Christians, again, we have a tendency to live however we want. We get angry at people on the road. We're a self-righteous driver getting angry at other drivers. And that's where Paul turns next. He makes the point of saying that we always worship something. We were made to worship God, but if we don't, something, something, something will become our object of worship. Verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, Paul is saying that all of sinful humanity looks at nature and says, yeah, there's a God, but we want nothing to do with him. We don't give him thanks. We take all the credit for ourselves. But we were all made to worship God, and if we don't, we are not living as we were made. Paul says that we don't, when, we, when we don't worship God, our hearts are darkened. We reject him. Now, when I was a little kid, I used to be afraid of the dark. And so I had a nightlight in my room. Otherwise, I couldn't sleep. Anybody else out there afraid of the dark when they were a kid? All right, some of you, some of you are still afraid of the dark, I know. Um, in fact, my daughter is three years old, and she's having a difficult time sleeping because she's afraid of the dark. She comes in at night and says, Mom, I'm afraid of the dark. I, don't, I, want, I need to come in your room. And so I, I got to go to her room for a little while so she can fall asleep. And if she does wake up again, she comes back in our room so she's not afraid. Now, what I find interesting is that when we're little, we're afraid of the dark. But often when we get older we become afraid of the light because we like to live and hide in the dark so people can't see what we're doing. We want to live however we want, and the darkness promises us no one will find out. No one will see you. And that's what Paul's talking about here. People that worship God are in the light. Those who reject him are in the dark. Now, I'm told when kids get older, they start hiding things from their parents so they don't get caught in their disobedience. And so you may, your child may steal a cookie from the cookie jar after you told them not to, but they quickly eat it so that you won't be able to see the evidence of their crime. We all love the darkness, even from the time that we're little. I heard someone say recently, we can easily forgive a child who's afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. And how true that is. Tim Keller says, when we stop depending on God, we don't stop worshiping. We simply change the object of our worship. And so the question you should ask yourself is this. Who or what am I truly worshiping? Am I living in the light with God or am I in the dark worshiping another God? Because that's what Paul says next, verse 22. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles 
or I think the ESV says creeping things. Now look at the contrast of these two verses. They thought they were wise, but they were fools. They exchanged their worship of the creator for the created. The images Paul uses here call to uh, reference Isaiah 44.13, where the prophet there says that it's folly, it's folly for people to worship created things. And so here's the truth for us. When we worship created things, we become fools. When we worship the true God, we become wise. Omar Bradley writes this profound assertion. He says, the world has achieved brilliance without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Nuclear giants, ethical infants. And it sure seems like that a lot of times in our world today, where people are trying to redefine morality. Everything that was once considered moral is now being questioned. What we need in this world are people who don't make the exchange but instead seek to worship God because apart from God's intervention, we would all redefine morality to our liking. If we don't, Paul's main point for this section is clear. We are all accountable for our sin. His wrath is being revealed against godlessness and wickedness. All of us are inclined to suppress the truth and worship created things rather than the creator. The world is filled with people, although they see evidence of God, reject him. The wrath of God is being poured out upon these things. Our rejection provokes God's reaction. And that's where he turns next, to God's reaction. Our rejection provokes God's reaction. And in the next section, God gives three practical ways that we reject God and what his reaction is to that. So look at verse 24. It says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Now notice that phrase. I made it big on the screen for you. God gave them over. What does that mean? Paul uses it three times over the next few verses, and each time it's in relation to another way that we reject God. And it shows how God's wrath is being revealed. Now, the word that's translated, God gave them over, is used often in the Old Testament in referring to God handing people over to their enemies or delivering people's enemies into their hands. So take this in for just a few minutes. This, this needs to sober us here. What Paul is literally saying is that because of our rejection of him, God is handing us over to our enemies. And it's not a passive phrase. In the Greek construction, God is actively saying to me, if you don't want me, go. And then he turns to my enemies and says, take him. Or as one commentator puts it, it's like God is putting us in a boat and then pushing it downstream. And that is a sobering and scary reality. This action is what it means that the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, Right now, you're probably raising an objection in your head and your heart, and you're saying, how can God do this? That's not the God I believe in. You might say, but, but really, the reality here is God is simply giving us what we want. Look at the second part of that verse. It says, he gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And so it can be said that God's wrath is giving us what we want. Whereas the writer Oscar Wilde summed it up, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. 
And the God of the Bible does the same thing. In other words, we chose our sinful desires over God. We chose the dark over the light. Or to choose, use another Star Wars illustration, we are all Darth Vader. Anakin Skywalker, if you've seen the movies, the man who would become Darth Vader, gave in to the dark side of the forest because he wanted power. He desired even a good thing to save the one he loved, and it turned him into a monster. There's some Darth Vader in all of us. God gave them over, and now we face the consequences. Paul gives three practical examples of the consequences of our sin. The first is idolatry. Idolatry. So look at the rest of verse 24 and 25. It says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now he'll come back to sexual impurity in a moment. Instead, let's focus on verse 25. The word exchanged. The Bible defines worship of something other than God as idolatry. And when it says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, it's talking about idolatry. Paul is saying they worship false gods. Now, how does someone practice idolatry? Well, the reality is that anything can become an idol. John Calvin was the one who said the heart is an idol factory. An idol is anything that becomes all-consuming in our lives. It becomes more important than God itself in our lives. So too often we think about idols as being these weird statues in the ancient world. And they were. But we also need to discern modern idols. And so you need to ask yourself, where in my life am I worshiping and serving created things rather than God? When you go to sleep and when you wake up, what dominates your thoughts? Where do you spend most of your time and money? The the answer to those questions will give you a clue as to who or what you are truly worshiping. Because Paul says it's God who should forever be praised, amen. But God says if you want to worship those false gods, go ahead, see what happens. All the time, you'll be let down. Now, the second example he gives is what he essentially calls unnatural sexuality. And before I go through these next two verses, I have to say that these are some of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible today. It's controversial specifically because of our current cultural moment and the fact that it's the clearest repudiation of homosexual practice in the whole Bible. And I recognize that there may be some skeptics in here today, so I would ask you just hang with me because I think there's some good reasons to accept what Paul writes here. So verse 26 says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Now again, there's that phrase, God gave them over. And a natural question to ask when we look at this passage is, well, why does Paul single out homosexual sexual practice here? To answer that, I would point out that this section of Romans 1 is a commentary on the Gentile world of Paul's time. So chapter 2, when we get there next in two weeks, uh, we'll discuss the self-righteousness of the Jews. But here he's focusing on the sins of the Gentiles, which was a common Jewish criticism of Gentile culture at the time. Now the other point I want to make is related to that word natural. When Paul uses the word nature, 
he is often using it to connect to the created order of Genesis 1. And in the sexual ethic of Genesis 1, it was clear that sexuality was reserved for male and female relations. Now remember again, in the context of Romans 1, this verse is connected to the condemnation of sinful desires Paul referenced in verse 24. So in recent years, this has become a hot-button topic, and some scholars have even argued that, well, homosexual practice that Paul is talking about here, uh, what he had in mind was more deviant practices, things like older men having sex with young boys. People will argue that this does not take into account committed same-sex relationships. But I would argue that Paul is saying the entire practice is against God's moral will. So in verse 26, specifically, Paul is using the example of a lesbian relationship. And this is the only time in the Bible this happens. And so as such, that argument about men and young boys isn't really a compelling one. And that being said, he continues in verse 27. He says, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I don't want to go into details here, but in the Greek, the sexual language is very graphic here. And so as such, we should conclude that the plain meaning of the text is this. Paul is arguing that homosexual sexual practice is against God's moral law. Why? Because it does not promote human flourishing, which is what God wants for us. The practice of such sins is a rejection of God's moral law. Now, with that being said, given the nature and complexity of this topic, a few more comments are warranted. This topic is particularly challenging because it is so intensely practical in our world. Or put another way, there are theological issues about which people can disagree, but they have less practical implications in our lives. And in this instance... The current cultural narrative is in direct contradiction with what we read in Romans 1. What are we to do? How do we respond? Let me mention two errors to avoid. First, we should avoid trying to be so relevant that we discount what Romans 1 is saying. That if we're people who hold a high view of the Bible, we should not apologize, avoid, or downplay what it teaches. We should be people who hold firm to the truth. And I know, for some who read these verses, it's really difficult. In fact, you may have been hoping that you knew we were covering this section today, and you thought, maybe we'll skip those verses. In his memoir, Out of a Far Country, author Christopher Yuan shares his journey of realizing that he was gay. He was a son of Chinese immigrants, and from a young age, he knew he was different. Eventually, when he was an adult, he came to faith in Christ, after years of his mother praying for him, the whole book details out his life, and he's really open about it. When he fell in love with Jesus, and he did in his adult years, he fell in love with his word. Obedience was not easy, but he writes this. He says, God's faithfulness is proved not by the elimination of hardships, but by carrying us through them. And listen, this is a good word for all of us here. Change is not the absence of struggles. Change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. And he says, I realize that the ultimate issue has to be that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. Now, this was, not, this was a difficult, incredibly difficult struggle for him. But he says surrender to God was far more important than his desires, 
The goal is to choose holiness in the midst of struggles, and that, again, is true for all of us, no matter what you struggle with. Now, second, we should avoid a self-righteous attitude in this area. So some churches will be so focused on the truth that they act like they want nothing to do with gay people. We post things on social media or we stand on street corners with bullhorns condemning people and feeling good about ourselves because we're standing up for the truth. In fact, we may welcome other sinners except people who wrestle in this area, and that's not right and it's not good. This is a second error that misses the grace of the gospel. So again, how do we approach this topic? We need a combination of grace and truth. Don't compromise what Paul is teaching but also minister to those that are struggling. How? Well, let me mention again three areas that this subject, I think, touches us, where it touches us today. First, and unfortunately, I think, there is a very large political and cultural dimension to this topic. And so as a Christian who affirms traditional marriage and a traditional sex ethic, it probably feels as if this topic is just in your face all the time. And to be frank, it is. Right? It's everywhere from presidential campaigns to advertisements to school curriculum, every media form you can interact with. And so here's what I would say. Use wisdom and discernment. Stand up for truth, yes, but also remember that there are people behind politics. So secondly, there is a very personal dimension to this topic. And I know from having conversations with many, many people that there's folks who struggle with this here. In fact, there's many more who have family members and friends who wrestle with this topic. And so in that regard, I encourage you, sit down with people, hear their stories, help them move closer to Jesus in this area. And finally, and related, there is a pastoral dimension to this issue, that we need to hold firm to the truth, yes, but also recognize the complexity of the topic. Paul's point, however, after that diatribe, is not to single out homosexuality. It is one example among many that he's bringing up. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I may sin, but I don't sin as much as those people over there, you need to read the next few verses. (laughs) Because finally, Paul turns to the issue of societal destruction. And in verses 18 to 32, Paul just has something for everyone, friends. Look, if you didn't see yourself in the previous verses, you will surely see yourself here. So look at verse 28. It says, Furthermore, just as they did it, they they do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over in a depraved mind so that, that they do what ought not to be done. Now, the knowledge of God was made available through creation, A rejection of this knowledge leads to a depraved mind. Their minds are so depraved they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so they forgot him. And when people forget about God and society, what happens? Verse 29. It says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Again, this list has something for everyone. Look, it's it's the longest vice list in the New Testament. So we already learned that wickedness referred to people who commit evil acts toward other people. That's what a depraved mind not centered on God does. It produces wickedness. Now look at the rest of the list. It says they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, 
God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Where do I see myself on this list? Now, you may not struggle with sexual issues, but do you gossip? Do you envy your neighbor's possessions? Do you disobey your parents? I mean, the list is wide-ranging, and it's filled with multiple disorders. First, there's, there's an economic disorder that's mentioned here. Notice, if you notice, greed is on the list, which is a selfish accumulation of wealth, typically at others' expenses. There's social disorders, like murder and strife and deceit and malice. I mean, when those are present, social things don't go well. There's family breakdown with disobedience of parents. There's relational breakdown that people of depraved mind are, don't have any fidelity or love or mercy. See, again, I would ask, where are we on this list? Where have we exchanged the worship of God for a lie? In what ways are we rejecting God with our actions? See, Tim Cower sums it up well. He says, well, not everything we do is always completely sinful. Nothing we do is completely untouched by sin. And so those three examples point to our rejection of God in our lives. God's reaction is to pour out his wrath upon sinful humanity by giving us over to our desires. Now, this is a hard-hitting chapter, right? And he's got one final word for us, which is perhaps the best diagnostic tool of them all. He says, be careful what you celebrate. Be careful what you celebrate. It's, it's the most convicting indictment on us all. Look at what he, how he finishes. Verse 32, he says, although they know God's righteous decree and those who do such things deserve death, or that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also also approve of those who practice them. <laughs> now, what are we to make of that? Well, the righteous decree is something that would be known to Gentiles as well as Jews. God's righteous decree is his ethical standard written on the hearts of all people. And if you ignore it, he says, you deserve death. So for the last 15 verses, Paul has been making this case of what it means to actively disobey this righteous decree. But here he goes even further. He says they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now take that in for just a minute. What Paul is saying to anyone who disobeys God's righteous decree is that it's worse if you're encouraging others to disobey as well. So again, think about that. Look at the picture he's painting here. Because essentially he's saying, I can be someone who wrestles with idolatry and I worship false gods. I can be someone who sins sexually. I can be someone who contributes to societal breakdowns through my actions, but that is just me. It is far worse if I am encouraging other people to take part in this. Commentator Colin Cruz puts it this way. He says, this would appear to be the ultimate act of rejecting what they know of God. They not only do what is wrong, but they encourage others to do so by their approval. And in doing so, they usurp God's prerogative of defining good and evil, denying what he says is evil, is in fact evil. What's he saying? 
Be careful what you celebrate. Be careful what you celebrate because the wrath of God may be poured out upon you. And I don't know about you, but I don't want the wrath of God poured out upon me. I want the blood of Jesus poured over me. What do you celebrate? What do you cheer? It may be that you're celebrating things that deserve the wrath of God. And on that happy note, the passage ends. We'll get, we'll get to chapter 3, don't worry. <laughs> Paul's overall point in this passage is to expose the need that the wicked have for the gospel. So again, ask yourself, as you look over the chapter, am I encouraging anyone in things that are contrary to God's righteous decree? Or am I allowing the truth of the gospel to set me free to become an agent of change in a dying world? Now, this is a sobering passage Believe me, but again, you have to have the bad news before you can truly understand, appreciate, and be transformed by the good news. All of us are in this passage somewhere. And so today we have a choice. We can allow this passage to to harden our hearts or soften our hearts. We can say the wrath of God, oh, that's just so antiquated and unfair. Or we can say, God, save me from myself. God, save me from my idolatry. God, save me from my sexual impurity. God, save me from the social disorders to which I am prone. God, save us. Which will we choose? I'd like to call the worship team back on stage for one final song. And as they come, I would just remind us, there's a lot of bad news in here today, but we will get to chapter 3. There is good news. Jesus Christ has come. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God has come, and he had to come because of the sinful state of the human race in this world. And so God pours out his wrath upon sin, but he wants to cover us in the blood of his Son, which shields us from the wrath of God. Here is the amazing news of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus Christ, in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, absorbed the wrath of God for us. For us. He became our atoning sacrifice so that the wrath of God did not fall on us, but it fell on him. What grace. What mercy. And so wherever you are at in your spiritual journey today, I want to encourage you just two things as we close. First, confess. Confess your sins to Jesus. Come to him. Tell him where you found yourself in Romans 1. Now, he already knows, but he wants you to come to him. Second, repent. Turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ again or for the first time. Because those false gods you're pursuing, they won't bring joy. They will only bring pain. Confess, repent, and come. Come to the cross and receive the mercy that is available to justified sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, just, we come before you, Lord. We come to our knees, Lord, and we, just, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we know what we are. Father, we deserve your wrath, and yet you gave us your righteousness. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. We give ourselves to you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.